You're listening to the Film at Lincoln Center podcast. My name is Eugene Hernandez, Deputy Director here at Film at Lincoln Center. This week at Film at Lincoln Center, we're exclusively opening What You're Going to Do When the World's on Fire. Roberto Minervini's passionately urgent lyrical new documentary is a portrait of African Americans in New Orleans struggling to maintain their cultural identity and to find social justice. The film was an official selection at the 56th New York Film Festival, where the director, as well as producers Paolo Benzi and Denise Ping Lee, as well as the film's subjects, Judy Hill, Crystal Muhammad, and Nat Turner, joined programmer Dennis Lim for a conversation. Join the director, Judy Hill, and Crystal Muhammad this weekend for Q&As, plus an opening reception on Friday night. Get tickets at filmlink.org. Let's go now to the conversation at the 56th New York Film Festival. Thank you all for being here. Um, I'm going to start with just a question for Roberto about um, maybe you can just tell us how this film came together. Um, it's a film with several different strands. You have Judy's story, you have the Black Panthers, you have the boys, and you have uh, Chief Kevin. When you were here on the stage, um, I think two and a half years ago, you were talking about shooting um, in New Orleans, and you were telling me that you were going to make a film about music. Um, there's some music in this film, but it's uh, it's about many other things as well. So, yes, it's true. Um, uh, maybe it was 2015 that I decided to make a film about. So I wanted to dig deep into the roots of uh, of, of black music uh, for several reasons. One is because um, music has always been this kind of unattainable thing for white white people. Tries to steal over and over. So trying to steal music from black people. I think. We could argue that the only music that, that is not that doesn't come from the black tradition is probably punk rock, but the rest has been taken away. Uh, today, blues is, is white people's music. So I tried to dig deep into that, and I thought of Lebelli. Lebelli is one of the first people, first musicians who were recorded by the Smithsonian Institute, and it is no coincidence that a lot of the music, black music, was found in jail. People were in jail, incarcerated, and were telling you know singing songs of there. The, the, the sorrow and that tragedy. And, uh, but then I met, for the first person I met was Judy, uh, because Judy comes from a family of musicians. She's herself a uh, performer, a musician. So, and then I hung out at her bar, and then I realized after meeting Judy and other people that perhaps yeah, I didn't have to dig very deep. I need to go back into you know, the past to look into the past to tell a story that is uh, of, of today. Um. I think one thing that's striking about all your films and about this one and maybe especially the last three is just the degree of um, the access that you have and the intimacy that you have with your subjects and, and also like a degree of trust that you cultivate. And I think it's a, it's, it seems to me like a very different, it has to be a different, very different kind of relationship with the people in this film. Actually a different relationship with each which each character in a way too, and also compared to um, what you were doing with the other side. Um, and I'd like to hear from, you know, the maybe Crystal and Judy and, and Nat, if you want to talk about what you thought when Roberto approached you, what did he tell you and what made you say yes? What made you agree to, to work with him? Judy? Yeah, sure. Well, I met Roberto as he was saying at my bar and we were just hanging out as friends first. No cameras, no nothing. He came in as a human being, as a person. And he came in there with his heart on his sleeves. That's how he was able to get next to 
me, somebody like us in my community. You understand? If you can see the story, you can see our struggles and where we've been. But when we met Roberto and his friends and all, I mean, like I say, he came in with his whole heart. And he was able to, you know, we accept it. It was beautiful. We were friends first for a good while. We wasn't, it wasn't no cameras or anything. Yes. And, and it, it was easy to say, yeah, then, you know, it's very easy. He came with love. Yeah. Black power, power to the people. Well, for me, uh, the reason why we decided to do this film with Roberto, we had been approached by, after the Alton Sterling um, demonstration in 2016, it was like 185 of us got arrested that weekend for speaking up for justice. And uh, it was a lot of American media out there, but the way we were depicted, we weren't, they weren't really putting a true story out. And then when um, Billyanna reached out from New Orleans, I'm from New Orleans, and said that uh, these folks from Europe wanted to cover what was going on, we thought, okay, well, this would be a, you know, probably a good way to expose what's going on to us in America because this is something that we go through every day that gets whited out in Western media, in American media. They villainize us as if we're some kind of the, same, the black version of the Klan, which we're no way the black version of the Klan. We're freedom fighters. So you can't say a person is an oppressed and they stand up for the oppression and act like they're the same <laughs> as the people that are oppressing. It's not the same. And we wanted to get exposure about the fact that since I've been in the party, we have not only been dealing with police killings, we've been dealing with lynchings. We're, we just got through dealing with a lynching in February ongoing lynching right now, this February, a year after that was done with Willie Jones Jr. And it, it was just timing that when they came, not only were we trying to get exposure for the injustice with Alton Sterling's case, but the lynchings we keep experiencing in Mississippi. Otis Berg was lynched in 2015. Philip Carroll was lynched in 2017. Jeremy Jackson was decapitated and then his body set on fire in 2017, and this year, in 2018, Willie Jones Jr. was just lynched. And every time the NBI or the local police come in, they just say suicide. Even though Otis Berg was hung 15 feet in the air with his hands tied behind his back and a bag on his head, the local police say suicide. Even though Philip Carroll was hung in a pouring rain in his own backyard, it's impossible for him to hang himself. The local police and the NBI keep saying suicide. When Alton Wright was uh, tongue cut out, teeth put out his mouth, throat slit, the Texas Rangers said drug overdose. And we never get the exposure of our cases in the Western media, in the United States media. They're so busy trying to sensationalize the fact that we're Black Panthers and, and deviate from the story. They don't expose what we're for. We're freedom fighters. We're human rights activists. We're advocates for the people. We're not the, the opposite of the Klan. We are the anti-Klan, if anything. We're anti-racism, anti-capitalism, imperialism. We're human rights activists. We've never oppressed anybody. We stand up for our God-given rights.
and we don't get that exposure. They villainize us. And then when, we, when I talked to him, to, to Roberto, I looked in his eyes. When I talked to Denise, I looked in her eyes. When Paolo came, because at first we was like, you know, in that church, we were like, I can't trust these white folks. They might be kind of trying to trigger us. It might be the CIA. You know, that's what we were thinking. Okay, okay, you're going to act like he want to help us. You just want to follow us around. That's what we were thinking. But then when we looked at the stories that you did before, at first we were like, I don't want to be painted as the anti-Klan, and we talked to you about that. And he said, no, they wanted to actually deal with what we were dealing with. So they seemed honest, so we gave them a shot. And, you know, I apologize to the people. Yeah, that's great. I, I want to follow up just uh, a little bit, just to say that uh, um, I think the way I approached it, and um, when I talked to uh, Crystal and the Panthers, and even with the other, all the people involved in the film is that, um, I mean, I was aware of the fact that, I mean, I wasn't looking for an alliance. I'm a white guy, and, and in several situations, I've been reminded of that. There's been people also here in the audience who told me we had several moments, convivial moments, we had together, but they told me, you know, we could make the best of friends, but we cannot. We're fighting a revolution, and because the white society of the whites had never made amends to us, and it was very clear. And there's been moments during the uh, Otto Sterling's and told me, "Who are you? You know, I don't, I don't care if you're with the Panthers. If you portray my 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 nephew in a, under a bad light, well, I'm gonna kill you." And people around us were agreeing, and I was, and I agreed, and I understood that I, that you know, understood that as a white guy, I can express all my indignation, but if I don't take responsibility, if I don't make clear that indignation is not enough. It needs an assumption of responsibility. And, and, uh, and again, we can talk about that, but I know that indignation doesn't make me a friend of black people because I am, uh, there's more, there's more. Indignation is not enough. Like lesser equality is not equality. It's pretty much the same principle. So I think I approached the film and all the people in it with that attitude. And I hope uh, perhaps it went through and people felt that I wasn't looking to be a hero of of black America, because I'm, I'm not. I'm a white guy. I'm an accomplice to white supremacy, because I, you know, in a way, we can talk about that. Um, before we talk about that, uh, I wanted to ask, actually, uh, <laughs> um, actually, the three of you uh, watching the film, I, I think today was not your first time, right? But watch, watching this film? You've seen it before? I yeah. saw it on the... On the laptop. Okay, so first time in a cinema. First time seeing it. So. Um, I'm curious what your response is because obviously the film is not just about your experience and what you know how you represent it, but there's other lives, other characters, other moments that are captured. So I'm wondering what you make of the film as a whole. Um, Let me say this: it's a, it's a raw reality of real America. You know, um, you to look at how this country was founded. You know. Um, and the path, the path that it has taken since, you couldn't possibly come come here and almost wipe out the indigenous black or brown people here from the top of Canada to the bottom of Chile. Okay, complete that process, and then then go over the ocean, and then snatch another group of people, bring them here to be your beast of burden, get rich, break every law known to humanity. There isn't one law that they broke, that they didn't break. And then once they got themselves in a settled position, then they made everything against the law. 
Everything that they did, it became against the law, even loitering. They broke all laws known to humanity to get in the position that they are. Now, the Hindu people, they have this word called karma. There's a word called dharma and karma. This is where we at. These are laws of nature. Okay, these are laws. Just, just as Nature is the, is the best teacher of us all. Spring, summer, winter, fall. And what happens in springtime with the leaves? What happened in fall time with the leaves? These are laws of nature. And so if you look at history, you see, in the, when, you, when you look at European history, these are facts. When you look at European history, you look at how, the, how Europeans migrated around the world. We go back to Greece. And, and the Greek city-states had to make wars with each other to settle differences and scores. Okay, so once they was able to iron those things out, what did they do? They confederated. And then they branched out. Look at Alexander the Barbarian, who we were taught in school was Alexander the Great. Okay? And so when you come down through history, what do you see? That branched out into what? White on black violence. Okay? Now, what is the bastard child of white on black violence? Black on black violence. What is the only one that's left? If you, if, you, if you look at the laws of nature, what is the only one that's left? See, these are the things, this is where we at. And see, European people find themselves in a very precarious situation. Damned if you do, damned if you don't. This is where we at, and we have to be realistic. Now, when we look at the police, you know, we, we call the police the pigs. So, well, well, why y'all calling it? Well, Huey P. Newton answered that question. He just simply asked him. He said, you ever seen a pig in the pen? He said, yeah. Well, what is a pig in the pen? He's a very nasty, filthy animal. Well, that's how we feel when we get treated by the police. That's how they began to call the pigs. See, these terminologies that we use, cracker and redneck, the stuff you heard in, in, in you know, these terminologies we use, cracker and redneck, you, know, you know what I'm saying? You know, uh, honky and all that stuff. Those are terms from an ill relationship that the oppressor had with the oppressed. This is, how we got, this is how we got to this stage. I ain't no niggas and bitches come from Africa. Neither did slaves. African people came from Africa. Human beings came from Africa. Okay? So this is where we at in the society today. And so when you look at the police, let's, let's be clear on this here. The, the, the police job is simply to protect the property class of rich white people, the rich, the rich white ruling class to begin with. And the Black Panther Party that was founded by Huey P. Newton and Bobby Seale in 1960, they already established that and they proved it. They clearly proved it. This is why we have such trouble in getting these cases, uh, I mean, just blatant outright murder. To, you know, to me, a right, just blatant outright murder, a child, just blatant outright murder. And what, you go to trial and what happens? You know, not guilty or whatever, you know, this, this thing. And, and we, we, sometimes a lot of us have become even more distraught over that. We, we, can't, we can't even process it. We can't even get it. So we start looking at the, the reality. What is the role of the police in a in capitalist society? What is the role of the police in a capitalist society? When you get that, when you answer that question, then you will figure out why all these cases, you know, with these, these po outright executions of unarmed black men, then you will begin to understand why they're not guilty verdicts. This is what we talk about here. You know, and I just wanted to say, um, when, they, when they came, it's like, I said, well, how, how y'all know they ain't the pigs? How y'all know, you know, know they ain't, he ain't the FBI? You know, we, I'm sitting there like, well, you know, I ain't never saw him before. You know, but this is, this, this is how we have to think. 
our elders taught us, the people that they didn't teach us about in school, you know, uh, H. Rap Brown, who's doing, who, who's doing time. We still have, this country don't even acknowledge its own political prisoners, and they, and, and they, they come down on countries overseas, you know what I'm saying, for having political prisoners. And we got political prisoners right now, sit behind, behind these concentration camps right now as we speak. And I'm talking about, like, in my, I ain't talking about 30, 40 years, I'm talking about, like, yesterday. We have a, we have a brother sitting in the audience right now, you know what I'm saying, a, a, just, just been under a, a former political prison on the trumped-up charge. We got another brother behind bars right now named Justin Sarkozy. That's his government name, Justin Sarkozy. Look him up. You pull out your iPhone, whatever it is you have, and, and check that out. This is where we have. We're real time, man. We're real time. We're playing those games, man. We want the same thing that all other nations have. And there's nothing wrong with that. Arab, Arab people, Arab nationalism, you know, Vietnamese people, you know, they have their culture. You know what I'm saying? We got Chinatown in Chicago. We want the same thing that everybody else wants. You know, when it, when it comes to black people, you say nationalism, oh, wait, hold up. Just like I said, you know, when, you, know you speak, you, you start talking about nationalism, black, oh, wait, hold up. You know, that's too black, too strong, something wrong with that shit. You know what I'm saying? It's all right with other groups of practices, you know what I'm saying? But when it comes to us, y'all give us what? Integration. You see what I'm saying? We just simply want the same things that all other, all other groups of your own language. I, I'm, I'm not from France. So why are you teaching me French in school? I'm not from Spain. You teaching me Spanish. What about teaching our children Swahili if we all Americans, if it's all our children? Black power. I think I'm going to open it up because we don't have that much time, but we're actually very curious uh, for audience reactions and questions. So we'll t um, if you want to raise your hand, we have microphones um, that will come to you. If anybody has a question or a comment. Yes, over there. Hi, how are you? Um, I guess my question was because I guess I originally saw, heard about the film via Facebook. And when I saw the preview, I was trying to make my determination as far as what the film would, um, would met, what it, what it would mean. So watching it now, I saw, really I saw a lot of symbolism and I saw a lot of, a lot of the imagery, it just means, and I saw a lot of symbolism part of it. So I really wanna know what was the purpose of writing the film? I understand that you said that you wanted to, it started off with music and then you met um, Judy at the bar, but what exactly was the purpose of the film? What were you trying to get to, what, what audience were you trying to bring in? So first, uh, I don't know if I heard, understood well that you mentioned like when you were writing, I mean, there's no writing, obviously, so I work of observation. Uh, so my purpose was to really open, you know, my camera and to tell, to document observe as many stories as I could, and as I was filming, with not really a, a clear idea what the end, the destination would be. I knew the journey. And, uh, but then I started seeing something that perhaps, in retrospect, I, I should have known, right? All the parallelisms among you know, the stories. Uh, how a mother is forced, obviously a single mother, because at least official data is 30% of black men in this country are in jail incarcerated. So a, a mother was forced to, a single mother was forced to raise the child and, and already warn him about the danger of, of being, having a, you know, a false start already because he doesn't have the golden ticket because he's black, like white people. So you already, she already has to tell him that things can go, turn sour very quickly. And then uh, we talk in other stories, we see stories of men being incarcerated constantly, men not being there even when the, when the, when the parents, uh, 
died. So all these parallelism are really those threads that the ones that I really, I, I really trusted the process, that if I kept filming stories at the same time, although they're geographically they might be distant and there's no strict relationship among the people in the film, I knew that the essence was there. I mean, they keep on telling things that, they, they, that all the people, they talk about things that they resonate in the other stories. So really, was it's, it's like a, um, that's what the film is. I wasn't trying to tell a story. As I said, I, I am not the most qualified person to tell a story about black uh, people. Uh, but I was just trying to be open, and that's why I decided to, to, to listen, because I think, uh, I think listening was the most important thing, and that's why this is the film, one of the, among the, the five films I made, this is, the, this is the film where people talk the most. Uh, because like Crystal said, you know, they haven't had a lot of chance to be heard, uh, especially with the white media, Western media. So that's really what the, what the, what the purpose was. There's not really a purpose from me, uh, uh, but it was really uh, me uh, being at service, uh, knowing that I, can, I, I know how to do this, in a way, I, can, I know the craft, and I could put myself a service and be a listener and try to do the best to, to, to present a, a scenario. There's this. Yep. Would you wait for a microphone? Thank you. Um, I actually, um, all, all power to the Black Panther Party for sure, but I wanted to ask uh, like a technical question. This is the third one of, the, of your films that I've seen about your, um, your camera, your camera setup, because you're just, uh, you know, you're just recording what, you know, what's going on. So like how you set things up and, and also like how many hours of, of footage do you end up with at the end for editing? Thank you. In this case, about 150 hours. And uh, there's not a setup per se, although there's something to say about that. I mean, I had it clear, first of all, that I wanted to make a black and white film. I tried to be very quick, but the point, the essence of the, of the answer is that color would have created a hierarchy of what's beautiful, what's not beautiful. Again, the Black Panthers are dressed in black. They usually, you see the rooms are empty. They're outdoors. It's not, call, from a color standpoint, it wouldn't have been the most beautiful part of the film. And I needed to neutralize all that because the beauty in terms of color is a European thing. It's a white European thing. There's the roots of what we consider beautiful in terms of color. It belongs to us. Uh, it comes from pictorial uh, arts. So I wanted to eliminate all that and that create equanimity among the stories. Um, so that's one point. Why am I saying this? Because yes, it's a work of observation, but it's, there's a lot of uh, rigor, rigor in doing this observation. As soon as I get to a place, um, me and Diego Romero, which is the director of photography, my longtime friend, we see the lighting conditions, what's available. We see what we can shoot. If things don't look good, meaning don't, don't elevate, emphasize the, the beauty in the people that I'm filming and the strength in them, inherent in them, their bodies, their words, I don't film. So that's why I, I, I'm able to capture some footage that is aesthetically pleasing, at least to me, because I make a conscious choice. I, I trust that that moment will unfold some other time because we shoot for a long time. So um, that's how we work, because there's no preparation per se. It's one camera. We don't cut. 
So uh, the, the card allows us to shoot for 90 minutes nonstop. So we shoot for 90 minutes each time. And, and it's me and Diego passing the camera on to each other. And then uh, when we run out of space in the memory card, we just replace it and they, they, everybody can keep going. And it's, it's really not, uh, I'm, you know, I, I'm, I'm sitting in the passenger seat, they're in the driver's seat. And, but I, again, I take care of my craft very, 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 uh, to the uh, almost, uh, you know, particular detail. But there's nothing really prepared. There's no real setup except for really documenting and observing and following. Uh, but it's done with an eye, with a particular attention, excuse me, to, uh, to a certain aesthetics and form. I think we actually are um, out of time, but I just realized that, Judy, you didn't get a chance to answer the question that I was asking earlier about your, your response to the film, because I know you've presented the film now in, in Venice at the premiere, and then you also were in Toronto and now here, and I'm just curious, you know, you've watched the film with an audience several times now, and I just would love to hear your, your thoughts. My thoughts of the film is beautiful. When I, I went to Venice and I saw myself on a big screen, I was looking at it like this. I was hiding. But and um, the older lady, that's my mom. And, and I, my take on it is beautiful. I cried, I laughed, I scooted under the seat, I got back up. I did everything in my seat. And I just want to say this to Roberto. I appreciate Roberto, I, I appreciate this man for coming in our neighborhood and giving us a voice. We needed a camera. We needed to be heard. Somebody, somewhere, had to hear our cry. A lot of people walk past us. They don't know our struggle. They see, they don't even look back. They don't even reach back and ask, can I pick you up? We don't get that. So for this man and his wife and all their friends to come in our neighborhood, and want to talk to us, let him, better yet than to even put us on a camera and take all his time out and record. Roberto had no idea about how much I cuss, I'm sure. <laughs> he sat there. And you know, and it mean the world to me. My cousin Michael, the guy smoking drugs, that's my first cousin. My little brother Eric in the light, my mom sitting at the kitchen table. That mean a lot to me. I'm 51 years old. We've been waiting on this shot for a minute. If it was just what a, a cell phone, Roberto gave us a scene. He didn't ask us no questions. He didn't tell me what to say or what to speak. We, it's like doing a rap song. We freestyle. Every time he came back, it's, it's, it goes that way in black neighborhoods. There's a new episode. And I appreciate these people, and I hope y'all do too. Thank you. Thank you so much. We have to wrap it up now, but uh, I want to thank you all for being here with us tonight. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the Film at Lincoln Center podcast. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. Film at Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City and supported by individuals just like you. For 50 years, we've been dedicated to supporting the art and elevating the craft of cinema and enriching film culture through the programming of festivals, series, retrospectives, and new releases, the publication of Film Comment, the presentation of podcasts, talks, and special events, the creation and implementation of artist initiatives, and our film and education curriculum and screenings. 
To learn more about what we do and support Film at Lincoln Center by becoming a member, visit filmlink.org. That's F-I-L-M-L-I-N-C dot org.